Hello everyone, and welcome to Discussions in Dragons, the podcast where my brother and I take an in-depth look at the world of 5e and all things Dungeons and Dragons. Opening and closing music credit to Will Savino at patreon.com slash musicd20. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. And this week, we're continuing our serialized look at the new source book for 5th edition titled Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Tasha's has introduced new and optional rules for character creation, as well as a ton of new subclasses for players to choose from. This week, we're focusing on the rogue and sorcerer subclasses and everything that Tasha's has to offer for them. So, fortunately, this week, I had the pleasure to look at the rogue subclasses. Now, I'm semi-familiar with rogues, I would say. Um, I... I've only played one in the past, um, but that class has always had an interest to me. I love any sort of game that involves stealth or sneaking around, anything like that. So I, I already have a preternatural inkling to play rogue. Um, but so fortunately this week, there is only one optional class feature that they have made things a little bit more simple. Um, and this one is called Steady Aim. So when you take this feature at third level, you may choose to give yourself advantage on the next attack that you make this turn, given that you haven't moved at all that turn. And then additionally, if you use this feature, your speed will be zero until the end of your current turn. So immediately when you think about having advantage, uh, for people that are familiar with rogues, you should think about sneak attack. That is the one of the core ways of getting the sneak attack damage off. And for those of you who aren't um, familiar with rogues, rogues get additional damage on their attack once per turn if they have advantage on the attack roll, or if other tactical re requirements are met, like uh, a friendly creature being within five feet of them, or etc. Things like that. Those are uh, listed in the book. Um, so I think it's really cool that this feature actually offers another way of gaining advantage without relying on, say, uh, the barbarian or the fighter, or, or any other martial class going in and being face-to-face -face with the monster, or without being, you know, the repetitive rogue that does, all right, bonus action hide, I fire off a shot, and then at my next turn, bonus action hide, I'm gonna fire off a shot. That can lead into some really boring rogue play. I know that was a major criticism of rogues uh, as a whole, is that their tactical fighting style was hide, take a shot, hide, take a shot. So I think that the trade-off of having to stay put while you fire off this well-aimed shot is pretty cool. Um, it gives a player a chance to find and exploit a really, really good hiding spot without having to bonus action hide. Um, or, you know, a spot that might give them good cover, but the fact that they have to also stay motionless so that they can better carefully think about where they are and if they can withstand a whole round of combat without moving. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, I know that I tried to make my rogue as mobile as possible. So being able to take steady aim is kind of a... It makes sense to me as a rogue setting up a shot like that. Oh yeah, I'd be using this constantly if I was taking rogue. Yeah, I mean, like, like I said, I don't want to harp on bonus action hide, but that's that becomes the rogue's bread and butter at that point, and it's... I can understand that as a player, it's repetitive and kind of boring, and to DM against it, I'm sure it's like, all right, well, the rogue's going to hide. Let's look at the passive perception of this creature. Well, it's not that great, so I guess you get your sneak attack. It, it offers more excitement to 
the DM and I think the player trading off, all right, well, I'm going to sit here and I'm just going to give myself advantage on this shot, but now I can't move. So the DM could possibly exploit that back. As much as, you know, a player likes to get advantage, they're trading off the possibility of garnering the attention of other people. Yeah, it's, it's still a really good feature um, that you get at third level. Uh, but like I said, I would be I would be abusing the crap out of that thing. I'd be just constantly, yep, bonus action, I'm just going to kneel down and take a steady shot. Yep, absolutely. So that actually does it for the optional class features. Um, and moving right into the roguish archetypes. So Tasha's Cauldron of Everything offers two roguish archetypes uh, that you will take at third level, one of the two. The first of which is called Phantom. So rogues that are a master of this craft are immersed with the powers of death. Their you know, macabre abilities manifest themselves to make them perfect agents to assist those that are trying to cheat their own fates. Almost ghost-like, these rogues tend to be a fearsome group. Uh, so the first thing that you get at level three is called Whispers of the Dead. So after a long rest, you may choose a proficiency in a skill or tool that you don't already have proficiency in, and you gain proficiency in that. And you lose this proficiency when you use this feature to choose another. So I thought this was pretty cool uh, just as a starting off feature. Um, I know generally rogues get two third level features. So as starting off, this doesn't you know, scream anything too overpowered to me. Uh, bards and rogues are pretty much known to be very useful when it comes to their skills that they assist the party with. You know, bards persuasion, all of their charisma. Um, with rogues, generally, it's stealth missions, being a scout, um, looking for traps. Uh, so I think that, you know, most parties would always have a rogue in it for this particular reason. So giving the rogue the ability to choose how their skills assist the party is really strong especially if you may have not have chosen a specific skill that your party needs in the current moment. So if you know, all right, well, maybe I didn't build a high intelligence, but I built a little bit more charismatic, um, but I still wanted to be stealthy and I still want to look for traps. So I guess I didn't really take the persuasion skill, even though I think charisma would be his strong suit. Well, after a long rest, you can gain proficiency in persuasion, knowing that you're going to have to talk to this person, maybe you don't have a bard or another person that's high charisma, you can assist your party in this way. So as long as your task isn't time sensitive, your party can take a rest and at least have a better chance of exceeding or succeeding the necessary checks in the future with that skill. It's a nice little uh, functional and, and um, you know, option, you know, it gives you some really flexible options. Um, you know, in other words, asking the rogue, hey, can you do this? The rogue says, I'm not sure. Let me sleep on it. Yeah. And the the fact that it's called Whispers of the Dead kind of implies that the people that they may have slain or the people that came before them are giving them this knowledge from beyond the grave. So I think flavor-wise, that's pretty cool. Like, uh, let me sleep on it. And in the dreams, perhaps, these people that have passed are whispering their knowledge and bestowing it upon this rogue. I like it. So the second feature that you get at third level, this is kind of the bread and butter of the phantom subclass. It is called Whales from the Grave. So when you hit a creature with your sneak attack damage, immediately after, you may force a creature within 30 feet of that creature that you hit to take 
a certain amount of necrotic damage. This damage is calculated by rolling half of the number of sneak attack dice that you would normally roll. And you can use this feature a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. So at third level, when you learn this feature, the sneak attack damage that you have is an additional 2d6. So the most that you'd be able to do is 1d6 necrotic damage. So that doesn't sound like a lot, but if you think about the creatures you'll be fighting at third level, potentially six damage is a good chunk of damage. And I think that the real strength of this feature lies in the fact that, no, correct me if I'm wrong, but no other rogue subclass allows you to damage two targets at once with a single attack, other than, I think, the it's the, the arcane trickster that can cast spells. Yeah, but like right. a single weapon attack, like taking the attack action, you can't attack two people at once with the same attack in any other rogue subclass. So it's very unique to this class, and thematically it makes sense um, that this phantom-like creature can just cause necrotic damage to another creature within 30 feet of it. That's a good range, too. 30 feet is nothing to laugh at. You know, a, a lot of these sort of uh, deal damage to something near another creature. The, the range is, you know, 5 and maybe 10 feet. Um, so 30 feet is, is a good distance. Um, and just to clarify, that is Wales, W-A-I-L-S, not W-H-A-L-E-S. I mean, I think they missed the mark when they decided that it wasn't going to be W-H-A-L-E-S. I would love the undead whales coming to assist you in battle, but... Perhaps. <laughs> your, your option, your choice. Right, yeah. But, I mean, if you think about it, you know, at, at max range, if you do make it to level 20, this third level feature gives you 5d6 necrotic damage. So essentially 30 necrotic damage on top of the fact that you would be doing 10d6 sneak attack damage. So this is just an additional damage. That's what I think is so cool about this, is the fact that it's additional damage. Yeah, very good feature when you're fighting multiple things. Not so useful when you're just fighting one thing. No, but how often does your DM just throw one thing at you? Usually, I mean, especially at third level, you're generally going to be fighting gnolls or groups of goblins or groups of smaller things. So I right. think the rogue being able to, at third level, throw a knife or shoot a crossbow bolt, doing that sneak attack damage and also taking out his partner next to him with the sheer necrotic force is pretty cool. So... Uh, moving along to the ninth level feature called Tokens of Despair. So there is a pretty big gap between the first and second um, features that rogues get. It is a six level gap. So unfortunately, you do have to wait quite a while for this one to happen. But honestly, I love this feature. I'm so, I was so excited to talk about it when I was reading it. So it's called Tokens of Despair. And fairly similar to what we saw with the Circle of Wildfire Druid, you are able to use another creature's death to your immediate advantage. So when you when you see a creature die uh, that's within 30 feet of you, you may use your reaction to extract a soul trinket from them. The DM determines the form of the trinket, and as long as you have at least one trinket on you, and the max number is equal to your proficiency bonus, you gain these benefits. You have advantage on death saving throws and con saves. When you deal sneak attack damage to a creature, you can destroy one of the trinkets to immediately use the Whales from the Grave feature without expending a use of that feature. 
and as an action, you may destroy one of your trinkets, regardless of its location, and in doing so, you can ask the spirit associated with the trinket a question. And the spirit is in no way compelled to tell you the truth, and it will answer as concisely as possible. Um, the spirit only knows what it knew in life, and that is determined by the DM. That can do a lot of things. Wow. Yeah, I love this feature. Um, I, I think it's so cool that it's a mid-game feature that both builds upon the previous one and then also adds a feature that kind of replaces a spell. Um, and if, you know, you are unfamiliar, the spell that it's replacing, quote-unquote, is Speak with Dead. Now, with Speak with Dead, it is... Um, you get to ask three questions rather than one, but the fact that you're essentially taking that person's essence in their soul and freeing them in exchange for a question. So they may be more inclined to speak with you, depends on the nature of their death. Um, but the fact that it also gives advantage on death saves and con saves, which is, I mean, nice for obvious reasons. You always want to have advantage on death saves. You never want your character to die, really. I got a question. Do you think they called it Soul Trinket because they couldn't call it a Horcrux? Yes, 100%. I think that's why. <laughs> and, you know, to distance themselves from a yeah. one yeah, for, 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 for obvious reasons. Yes. But yeah, it kind of works in the same way um, in the sense that you kind of have a chunk of that person's essence in a little trinket that you get to keep on you at all times. Um, I think that the downside to this feature is only that you have to have at least one of these trinkets on you at all times to gain these benefits. But honestly, without like with how much combat happens in the 5e environment, I do not think whatsoever that it's going to be hard to obtain a soul trinket. Um, I, I think a murder hobo would have it on them at all times. Um, and I know that this does not happen with every D&D session. Some are less combat focused, but I think... If you look at the general spectrum of 5e Dungeons & Dragons sessions, everyone's going to have combat at least once per session, per like four-hour session. You should usually have some soul trinket on you at all times. There's going to be an opportunity to find some, you know, dead life, or it, it just it specifies uh, when a life ends in your presence. So this could really be any life form, right? You could go out into the, into the wild and, you know... Uh, find a wild beast to uh, to go kill or something yeah it's yeah it's just when a life ends in your presence unfortunately you do have to keep track of what soul trinkets you have from whom because you can't just be like all right i've got a soul trinket and it's from a deer and i'm gonna ask it a question yeah well the deer might give you some information hey um yeah there's uh there's a river over there and that's all i know that's pretty that it could be i don't know that could be useful <laughs> You know what? I have been proved wrong. A, I was just asking joking, a deer but a spiritual question might actually could, could work. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to kill the intelligent wild beast. Be careful about who you kill. Yeah, exactly. And obviously having additional uses of your whales from the grave feature is always nice, especially since you can collect a bunch of these trinkets during a fight and be loaded up on them for the next fight, potentially trading out old trinkets for new ones. Though I suppose if you're going to uh, kill a deer to ask it where the river is, it's kind of insulting to the druid that can speak with animals. Yeah, we're going to assume that you don't have one of those in your party. <laughs> and also, I love the idea that a phantom rogue is kind of like a soul collector. That they go around and obtain these soul trinkets and just hold on to them for an indeterminate amount of time. 
only to like use these souls to assist them whenever they want. Yeah, this this whole uh, archetype seems like it's probably not a good aligned archetype unless you're, you know, killing off specifically evil NPCs or evil uh, bad guys. Yeah, I would say neutral at best. Right. So four levels later, um, since that one was ninth level, at 13th level, you get your feature called Ghost Walk. So as a bonus action, you assume a spectral form for 10 minutes unless you end it early as a bonus action. Now, while in this form, you have a flying speed of 10 feet and you can hover and all attacks have disadvantage against you. You can also pass through creatures and objects as if they were difficult terrain, but if you end your turn inside a creature or an object, you take 1d10 force damage. And you can use this feature once per long rest unless you destroy a soul trinket as part of the bonus action to use this feature again. So again, with the thematically consistent features in this subclass, with a name like Phantom, I was really hoping that they were going to go there and give this rogue some sort of ghost-like um, feature, and I'm so, so glad that they did. That is a really neat feature. It's one of those that's it's not overpowered or you know immediately ridiculously strong. It's just really uh, flexible in, in, in how you're going to use it. And... I, you know, having the ability to pass through walls and creatures is such a cool feature, especially, you know, when you think about that this subclass of rogues is supposed to be kind of like the specter of death. You are becoming a ghost, like floating through walls, an assassination attempt, possibly. Yeah. So honestly, I can only see a practical application of this feature outside of combat, though. That was one thing that I did notice while I was reading it uh, because of the... You, you only have a flying speed of 10 feet. So it, instead of your normal walking speed, it converts itself into flying speed of 10 feet and you can hover. I would say that, you know, unless you are up in their face or using like a longbow or something, I'm not sure that the disadvantage on attacks against you would really outweigh the fact that you only have 10 feet of movement. Since rogues are some of the most mobile classes, capitalizing on their mobility makes them very, very strong. Yeah, and even if you decide to um, to dash, you know, so you can fly 20 feet instead of 10, it's not that impactful. Right. And, you know, I like the addition of being able to use it again if you sacrifice one of your soul trinkets, and that builds off the ninth level feature. And something that I was thinking about while I was reading this, you know, being a specter of death, and I was like, man, what an intensely creepy way to assassinate someone. Yeah, no kidding. It doesn't say that you can't attack while in your spectral form. Just kind of ghosting in to somebody's room and while they're sleeping, take them out. Right through the wall. And then just without a trace, going away. Like, <laughs> leaving zero evidence of your entry behind. Right, right. So definitely not really in the, like we were saying before, not in the good aligned character's toolkit to do something like that this is definitely more of like a a neutral or possibly leaning evil type of a character yeah the only way that i could see this maybe is if your group is like if batman decided to kill people like very chaotic good to the point where he's killing bad guys yeah i could see that so coming up on the final end cap feature that you get as a phantom rogue. It is called Death's Friend at level 17. 
So with this feature, you gain two additional benefits. When you use your Whales from the Grave feature, you can deal the necrotic damage to the first creature as well. And at the end of a long rest, if you do not possess a soul trinket, one just appears in your hand. Oh, that's handy. So, yeah, this is a great end cap feature, I think. You know, it builds upon the level three feature nicely so that you can deal the necrotic damage to both creatures now. The original one that you hit and its companion at uh, 30 feet away. And it also allows you to have a soul trinket without killing anyone. Um, I was a little confused when I read this, though, because since the soul trinket appears in your hand at random, I'm not sure who that soul would be from and possibly what information that they could offer if they're, you know, if you call upon them for information. I don't know what kind of information they would be able to give you since I think the DM might say, you know, hundreds of people die every day. You probably just get a random one. Yeah, so in some sense, in some ways, it's maybe not as useful. Yeah, I would say only in that sense. Um, but honestly, because asking a spirit a question is a very niche and specific thing to do if you're like on a mission and you just really need a piece of information, I think, you know, I don't think that it will see as much play as the other two parts of this feature. The, the people that use this feature are probably more interested in advantage on con saves and death saves and the extra whales from the grave uh, opportunities to use that. And I, I do like that it kind of echoes the bard, and I believe monk gets this type of thing as well, like at level 20, where I think with bards, if you don't have any uses of your bardic inspiration, you gain one. And I think monks is something along the lines of, like if you don't have any key points, you gain oh, right, like right. one or two, I think. Something like that. But yeah, I like that this subclass kind of echoes that of like, all right, if you don't have any of these trinkets, you at least get one to use at the end of a long rest. Yeah, you just wake up, it's in your hand. Here you go. Yeah. And that's kind of spooky that just people's souls are just appearing in your hand when you wake up. Yeah, that is a little creepy. I think this subclass has a lot of really cool RP things built into its kit, where the fact that you are taking these lives and collecting these souls, yeah, that's cool for you, but is that cool for your party? Is that something that your party knows you can do? Are they okay with holding on to souls? You know, I think overall this subclass is fantastic. I think all of the thematic elements that Tasha's has brought to the table for them is phenomenal. I think it's just so cool. I, I can't stop raving about it. Um, you know, at first I had thought that the soul trinkets should have come up earlier in the subclass because they seem to be built on so heavily. Um, but since rogues get their subclass features at third level and then the next is at ninth, I think the soul trinket feature is a better fit for ninth level power wise to give them that power in third level is just far too much because they're getting sneak attack, which is super, super strong being able to deal an additional 2d6 damage, especially like what if you crit and it's even more all in all, I have nothing but positive things to say about this subclass and I will absolutely be building one in the future. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really neat. I, I like the RP elements as well. And so moving on to the second of the two roguish archetypes that Tasha's offers. The second one is called Soul Knife. So the Soul Knife rogue uses their psionic powers in place of physical tools or weapons to get the job done. They're able to manifest these psionic powers and outmaneuver some of their more material-bound counterparts, 
the book has said that they are often mistrusted by other rogues because they are not using any physical tools. The Soul Knife's rogues' intellect and otherworldly powers set them apart from other rogues in thieves' guilds. So the first of two features that you get at third level is called Psionic Power. This one is a little long-winded, so, so bear with me. Um, but much like the Psy Warrior subclass that we saw for Fighter, the Soul Knife rogues get Psionic Energy Dice, which I will just be calling Psy Dice, to fuel their abilities. You have a number of these Psy Dice equal to your double your proficiency bonus. These dice are a D6 and increase to a D8 at 5th level, D10 at 11th level, and a D12 at 17th level. And you regain all expended side dice at the end of a long rest, but you may regain one expended side dice as a bonus action, and that, that cannot be done again until the uh, end of a short or long rest. So with this feature, uh, when you take it at third level, you gain these benefits. Psy Bolstered Knack and Psychic Whispers. Psy Bolstered Knack is if you fail a check using a tool or skill that you have proficiency in, you may expend one side dice and add the roll to the total and the dice is only expended if you succeed that roll. Now, Psychic Whispers is, as an action, you may choose a number of creatures up to equal your proficiency bonus and roll one of your side dice. For the number of hours rolled, the chosen creatures can speak telepathically with you. To send and receive messages requires no action, and they do not need to share a language with you. But the creatures need to be able to at least speak one language, and they must stay within one mile of you. The first time you use this feature after a long rest, you do not need to expend a side dice, but every time after, you need to expend one of your side dices. Whew. Okay, so that, that was quite the explanation, um, and that was even paraphrasing from what the book has. So addressing the psi-powered knack, I think you know being able to assure yourself a success, potentially, with your psionic power is pretty cool. And even if you fail, you don't have to worry about wasting one of your side dice. Um, I know that with either half casters or with um, monks especially, when you have a limited resource, um, side dice are really, really important. When you have a limited resource, you don't want to do the thing and have it fail. So I like the fact that you get to keep the side dice if you fail, and it only expends if you succeed the check. That's a really useful feature to have in, in Rogue, you know, especially if you're the one that's checking for traps and picking locks. You want to make sure that you're making successful rolls on those. So this could definitely help ensure that happens. Nothing feels worse than being a Rogue. You've got expertise in stealth, and you roll, and it's just not good. It's just not good. <laughs> and you gotta you got to use that side dice, so hopefully, hopefully it'll give you a a boost to that. Right. But, you know, seeing that these side dice are pretty important, um, at level three, you only get four of them, and the max that you can have per day is 12. So kind of like how I said before with half casters that get a limited number of spell slots per day, you don't really want to just be throwing around your side dice, especially if you know that you could succeed without it or things like that. Um, you'll see later in this subclass, there are features that require the side dice. So it's, it's really important on how and where you spend these side dice. And as for the Psychic Whispers feature, I think obviously this has incredible uses. You know, the sky is the limit for how anyone could use 
telepathy. Sure, there is a limit for the time that you can use it, but it completely eliminates the need to buy something like a sending stone or casting a spell that causes telepathy. I know there's very limited items or spells where you can link up telepathically, and I think that's for good reason. Obviously, you know, using telepathy, that kind of eliminates the need for stealth checks when you're trying to whisper or things like that. Um, also, I think it'd be kind of cool, you know, if you're if you're one of those players that likes to play against the DM a little bit, have your have one of your characters go in for a little gambling session, and you've got your player <laughs> standing behind the person and just telepathically telling them what their cards are. Well then, yeah, it's it's very very useful. Being able to send in the stealthiest person to get a task done and eliminating the need for them to speak out loud while still communicating to the party, even being a mile away. I think that's pretty cool. Um, or, you know, you are staking out a person and the, the rest of the party needs to know what this person is saying. You send in the rogue, they're hiding up in the rafters, and they're just telepathically kind of being a transmitter for something that this person is saying. So now the whole party knows. Yeah, this is this is basically just like sending stones, but as a power. Yeah, and realistically, when you're level three, you're not going to be able to buy sending stones. You don't have that much money. You don't have the resources to try and buy something like sending stones or get those made for you because you don't have the money. They're not easy to come by. No, it's not like trying to buy, um, let's say, 5,000 tiny mirrors to make a laser. <laughs> it's not like 50 feet of hemp and rope. Yeah, not a bit. So the second of two features that you get at level three uh, is called Psychic Blades. So this is kind of, like I said last time with the Phantom, their bread and butter as well. So when you take the attack action on your turn, you can manifest a shimmering blade of psionic energy that has the finesse and throne property to make the attack. And if you're making a ranged attack with it, there is a normal range of 60 feet and no long range. The damage is 1d6 plus the ability modifier used for the attack roll, so strength or dex, and the damage type is psychic damage. After you make your attack, you can also make a ranged or melee attack with the psychic blade as a bonus action, provided that your other hand is free to make that attack, and the damage die for that attack is 1d4 instead. Now, much like Phantom getting something that is very Phantom-like, this is what I imagined when I heard the name Soul Knife. Being able to manifest a psionic blade in your hand uh, is really freaking cool. Um, and what struck me as really interesting is the fact that the range on this blade is 60 feet, period, with no long range. So that means that if the attack is made up to 60 feet, it is a flat d20 roll. But if it goes past 60 feet, it will not hit. Kind of like the range of a spell, if you think about it that way. If a spell's range is its range, you don't have a long or short range. You just cast the spell, and that's the range. Also, this is essentially infinite thrown blades. Yeah, you don't have to worry about ammunition. You don't have to worry about collecting your blades afterwards. Um, and having the ability with these blades to make a second attack as a bonus action is pretty cool and can afford this rogue the ability to skirmish a little bit before exiting combat. Um, but I would like to note that in the book's description, I, I checked on this a couple times just to make sure, um, there is no stipulation that you cannot add your ability modifier to the second roll, because this isn't two-weapon fighting. Um, this is just you are getting a bonus action attack with this soul knife. 
So the only thing that changes is that the damage die goes from 1d4 instead of 1d6. Uh, and paired, you know, it, I'm not telling anybody how to build their rogue, but if you wanted to do the mobile feat, um, the Soul Knife Rogue would be able to get in the sneak attack, put in another bonus action attack with your other Soul Knife, and then still get out of range without a scratch. So I think this is pretty powerful if you want a little one-two punch with these Soul Blades by this Rogue and still be able to get out, get in and get out. Yeah, there's a lot of potential for uh, some huge power there, for sure. Mm-hmm. And so again, skipping six levels to get to ninth is when you get your second feature in this subclass, and that is called Soul Blades. Now, this feature compounds on the techniques gained with your third level Psychic Blades feature. So the first one is called Homing Strikes. Uh, if you make an attack roll with your Psychic Blades and you miss, you may roll a side dice and add the number to the roll, and you can only you only expend it if you make the hit. Just like if you, you know, expended your side dice in the side bolstered knack to succeed on a check, it only gets expended if you succeed that. And the second part of this is called psychic teleportation. As a bonus action, you can expend one of your side dice to manifest a blade in your hand and throw it in a direction up to a number of feet equal to 10 times the number that you rolled on the side dice. You instantly teleport to that space and the blade vanishes. So, talking about um, the first one, um, Homing Strikes, I like that the feature does echo. You know, like I said before, it echoes the Cybolstered Knack feature that's gained at third level. Uh, it's, it's a good, you know, compounding. It's, you know, you've, you've gotten so good at these blades now that you can use your intellect and you can use your psionic energy to ensure a hit. So, and I think that the forgiveness of not expending one of those dice uh, unless you hit is, is pretty cool. Having said that, I have a bad taste in my mouth about the psychic teleportation. I'm not sure I really agree with how that teleportation should work. You, at, at this level, you are essentially spending one of your only eight psionic dice to, at worst, teleport 10 feet. And at best, move 80 feet. And if, if you think about this in terms of getting to 20th level, you are the best at your craft. You are the you are able to fight Vecna, we'll say. You should be able to teleport 120 feet. I, I really, really don't think that the teleportation distance should be determined by a dice roll. That would... I, I would just be so deflated and I'd feel like the wind was just kicked out of me if I'm trying to get away from something and I'm a level 20 soul knife rogue, and I roll a one, and I teleport 10 feet. That's so annoying and so irritating, and it costs a bonus action to do so. So it's not like you could just do it multiple times in a turn. Um, I just think that you should be able to teleport up to a fixed distance that increases as you level up. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you there. That inconsistency it would be really annoying you at that level with a, something like this you really want something that you can rely on that's consistent that you know what's going to happen before you do it and i understand with dnd there's going to be some sort of uh, unknown element to the outcome that's that's why we have dice in the first place but something like this you want to be able to rely on and know that hey when i cast uh, when i use psychic teleportation i know what's going to happen 
Uh, it's not like you're dealing damage with this. It's like you're using this to move to someplace else. You want to be able to rely on that outcome. Yeah, and there's like zero forgiveness when it comes to this feature. Like it should say, if you roll a one, you don't expend that dice. Something right. like that. I don't know. Because like you have spellcasters at seventh level that can take a fourth level spell called Dimension Door. And you can move up to 300 feet. And that's just, you get it. You move 300 feet, period. And I think that a seventh level caster moving 300 feet is, it's a little bit of out of the realm of possibility for me to think that a ninth level character can't move 80 feet. Yeah, you know, I think maybe if this had something like, you know, whatever the dice roll is plus dex mod, because you're, you're throwing a blade. It should be based on how far you can throw that blade, right? Yeah. Or, or maybe even just like a, a D20 roll. I don't yeah. know. Determined by your DM. Like the DC determined by your DM. If you throw it that far, you throw it that far. That's just, that is what it is. Um, I don't know. That's the only thing that really left a bad taste in my mouth about this feature. I was like, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Why, thinking in terms of level 20, why a level 20 character should not be able to teleport 120 feet if they want to. Yeah. As a ninth level feature, you might do something that's worse than simply bonus action dash. Exactly. Exactly. So moving past the ire that I feel for the second part of that feature, um, we get to the 13th level feature, which is called Psychic Veil. As an action, you may magically become invisible along with anything that you are wearing or carrying for one hour. This invisibility breaks if you deal damage to a creature or force a creature to make a saving throw. And you may do this once per long rest unless you expend a side ice to do so again. So, obviously, you know, invisibility is a cool, fun uh, thing that you can do. I'm just not so sure that it thematically fits with the soul knife vibe that they've kind of already established, but I can see its use. You know, the other rogue subclass in Tasha's has the ability to become a ghost at this level. Um, so, and this one allows you to become invisible. So I, I guess, you know, they wanted to give something similar to this subclass as they did with the previous. Um, it's not anything that I wouldn't expect a rogue to have. So, I mean, it's a feature that replaces a spell. Again, it replaces the invisibility spell. Uh, but I do think that there is a trend of you get this uh, once per long rest unless you expend your dice to do it again. And I think that's... I like that they continued that trend of doing that. Yeah, this this feature is just simply utility. It's, it's, a, it's a good one for sure. One thing that they did add, which I thought was pretty cool is you, along with anything that you are wearing or carrying, becomes invisible. Now, we would probably have to speak with a one Jeremy Crawford to have a ruling on this, but you could potentially pick up something, become invisible, and then just set it down. Does it still remain invisible? Because, you know, or if you take it off, does it not become invisible anymore? But regardless, you could completely make something super important just become invisible by carrying it and then becoming invisible. What if you're carrying a couple of friends? If you are a barbarian soul knife rogue, or sorry, a goliath soul knife rogue, and you can carry a couple people, maybe. If you if you put them on your back like a jetpack, are you considered wearing them? Yeah, I mean, if you if if somebody's doing like a like a piggyback situation, you're not holding them. You're wearing them. 
Maybe. Just maybe. Hey, DM, it says it in the book, wearing or carrying. Yeah, I'm I'm wearing a friend here. <laughs> Alright, so moving right along to the last and final 17th level end cap feature for the Soul Knife Rogue. It is called Rend Mind. So when you hit a creature with your sneak attack damage with your psychic blades, you can force the target to make a wisdom saving throw against your DC, which equals 8 plus your proficiency bonus plus your dex modifier. If they fail, they are stunned for one minute, and they can repeat this save at the end of each of their turns, ending on a success, and you may use this once per long rest, unless you expend a side dice to do so. So, this is a cool end cap feature. It capitalizes on the idea that you are using your soul knives, your, your psionic blades, to do the sneak attack damage, and it's just a bonus of, you got sneak attack, you are able to also do this thing while you got your sneak attack. So it's a bonus to damage and stunning them. And just as a reminder, the stunned effect, um, stunned creatures incapacitated. Uh, they can't move. It can, they can speak only uh, falteringly. They automatically fail strength and dex saves and attacks against them have advantage. So if you think about it, if you get your first attack in as this rogue and you stun them, you are getting sneak attack, you add your side dice to the attack, and now as your bonus action attack, you have advantage because they're stunned. And the fact that this is just using your psychic blades, so you could stun them from 60 feet away. You could make a ranged attack from 60 feet away and stun them. Depending on the situation, I can see this be being really annoying as the DM. Um, you know, this seems to be an all or nothing sort of effect. If you're if you're stunning something that's like the big end boss or whatever, um, then everyone just has advantage for the next minute and they're just constantly barraging it with these hits. Meanwhile, the, the big bad boss is failing these checks over and over. Um, I guess it's likely not going to be a really high DC and something at that level is going to be uh, making saves with a pretty big bonus. So maybe it's balanced in that way, but it seems to be an all or nothing where... If you, if you use it and it succeeds, it's really ridiculously good. But if you use it and fails, then it's, you know, obviously not useful whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's important to note here that everything else that is in the player's handbook or Xanathar's that can stun at a range, uh, like, a, like a spell, is a 7th level spell or higher. So I, I like the advantage that this gives. Um, the only stipulation, obviously, is that you can the stun can only happen if you're using your sneak attack damage with the psychic blades. So it, that's the stipulation to get that stun off. But the fact that stunning from 60 feet away is bananas. Oh yeah, absolutely. So as a subclass, I, I think that I, I like this one. Um, much like that, the Phantom, I think it's well thought out and thematically consistent. And I like that each feature kind of builds upon itself and it's getting stronger and stronger each time that you gain a new feature. And, you know, I, again, I don't want to harp on it too much, but I think the only thing that I can say that I really don't like is the teleportation because it's so dependent on a good dice roll. I just fundamentally disagree with the fact that spellcasters of the same level can travel farther without any sort of dice roll. Like, even the Shadow Monks at 6th level can teleport up to 60 feet without a dice roll as a bonus action. So, I think maybe some playtesting might need to be done, um, or perhaps some homebrewed rules, um, just to see what would actually make this 
the best version of itself. But other than that, I think that this is a nice subclass, and I think that Tasha's did a really good job of creating two rogues that are thematically consistent and honoring the, the themes that they have brought up with the description and with these features. Um, I just, I, I like both of them a lot. I think that they did a really good job creating two unique play styles of rogues different from what we've seen before. Yeah, they're, they're certainly different than any rogues that I've seen played before. Absolutely. So you took Sorcerer this week, that's right? That is correct. And I had to do a bit of review because as a player, I, I don't think I've ever played Sorcerer before. I've read through it a bunch. I don't think I've ever played a Sorcerer. So I had to go back to the book and review, remind myself how exactly this class worked. So I'm going to give a quick refresher and recap for those listening so we can put some of these extra features into context. Um, so Sorcerer is a true spellcasting class. They gain spell slots like wizards do. So that means at fifth level, you're getting third level spells, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, they gain their magic. They draw on their magic from some sort of external uh, strange origin. And at first level, you take that thing called Sorcerer's Origin. It's where the subclasses for Sorcerer really begin. Um, and at second level, you get access to these things called Sorcery Points, which lets you uh, trade them out for more spell slots. Or at third level, you start getting access to Meta Magic. And Meta Magic is a whole list of different things for you to choose from uh, that lets you beef up your spells in some way. Um, you've got a number of sorcery points equal to whatever sorcerer level you are. As soon as you start getting them at second level, you get them all back after a long rest. Um, and the meta magic, there's a list of them. You choose two at third level. Um, you got another one at 10th and then a fourth one at 17th level. Uh, they do things like increasing the range of a spell, rerolling damage, um, changing the casting time of a specific spell to a bonus action, um, or maybe even like changing uh, the target or choosing more targets for that spell. Um, and Tasha's has a couple of new options for meta magic. Um, so that's a, a bit of a reminder so because I wanted to give some context. The features that you get with these two new origins happen at uh, 1st, 6th, 14th, and 18th level. So I wanted to give some context as to, um, you know, yes, there's a big gap, but you're getting some things in between those gaps for these, these new origins. But before we get to that, we have to cover the optional class features. And I'm going to go through these kind of quickly because there's a lot of new spells. Sorcerers ha uh, has an expanded spell list, and Tasha's gives them quite a bit. I'm not going to go through every spell on this expanded list because there's a bunch that are in the player's handbook. So you can review those, check those out. But I will cover the ones in Tasha's um, briefly just because I want, to, I want to highlight some of them. They're pretty interesting. So... The new list of cantrips, these first two work kind of similarly. They both require you to have some sort of melee weapon because that's part of the spell. Um, and then uh, the first one's called Booming Blade. So on hit, so as part of the spell, you make a weapon attack. And on hit, until the start of your next turn, the creature that you hit is sheathed in this booming energy. And if they move five feet before the spell ends, they take 1d8 thunder damage. Then this damage, both the melee weapon damage that you you know, attack as part of the spell, and that thunder damage is going to scale at 5th, 11th, and 17th level. Next one is called Green Flame Blade. Um, on hit, uh, it works similarly. You make a melee weapon attack as part of the spell, and then on hit, you make this green flame energy bounce to a second creature within 5 feet. Um, and that second one takes fire damage equal to your spell modifier. Um, again, that 
melee weapon damage and the spells damage scaling at 5th, 11th, and 17th level. Next of the cantrips is Lightning Lure. This creates a lash of lightning energy. And at a range of 15 feet, you choose a creature, you make it, uh, it, it makes a strength save, and on fail, it's moved 10 feet closer to you. And then if it is then within 5 feet of you, it takes a d8 lightning damage. Um, this damage again scaling at 5th, 11th, and 17th level. There is Mind Sliver, which is uh, creates this disorienting spike of psychic energy. It's got a range of 60 feet, and the target must make an intelligent save. On fail, they take a 1d6 psychic damage, and they also subtract a d4 from its next save before the end of your next turn. Um, again, that damage scaling at 5th, 11th, and 17th level. Um, so I kind of like that one. It's uh, dual-purposed. Um, it, uh, you know, being able to have it subtract a d4 from its next save uh, before the end of your next turn is nice. Um, might take a little bit of planning and preparation on your part to, you know, make sure that they have that uh, subtraction for their next save. Maybe you coordinate with, a, with somebody else in your party so that you can actually take advantage of that. Um, and then last up for the cantrips, I'm really excited about this one. It's called Sword Burst, and this creates uh, a momentary circle of spectral blades. Uh, this really neat AoE, especially extremely useful for low-level sorcerers. But what it is, it's uh, within a five-foot radius circle. Um, every creature in that circle must make a dex save, and on fail, they take 1d6 force damage. That damage, again, scaling at 5th, 11th, and 17th level. So I think this last one's probably my favorite of the new cantrips because of how useful it is at low levels. Um, you know, at low levels you're fighting things like, you know, goblins and maybe things that might have pack tactics and advantage trying to, to surround you. Um, so dealing 1d6 force damage to those things as they're trying to gang up on you uh, is going to be incredibly useful. And in some cases it might just kill things outright with a cantrip, multiple things in one cantrip. That is really nice, um, especially since most cantrips are single target. Right. Um, so I'm really, I really like that one. That's my favorite of the new cantrips. Um, but not to dwell too much on that one because there's a lot of content to cover. Um, the new first level spell for sorcerers is Tasha's Caustic Brew. It creates this 30 foot long, 5 feet wide stream of acid that shoots forth from you. And each creature in that line must make a deck save. On fail, they are covered in acid until they use an action to get rid of it in some way. Um, and to remind you, uh, being covered in acid, you take 2d4 acid damage at the start of your turn. Um, that damage is going to scale if you use a higher spell slot to cast the spell. New second level spell is Tasha's Mind Whip. It's got a range of 90 feet, and the target must make an intelligent save. On fail, they take 3d6 psychic damage, and they also can't take a reaction until the end of its next turn. Additionally, this is what I like the most about this spell, on its next turn, if they fail that uh, intelligence save, they can only take an action, bonus action, or movement. They have to choose one. They can't take all three on their next turn. Um, on save, they, they take half damage, and they can just take a normal turn. You can choose more creatures um, if you use higher spell slots uh, with this spell. So I think being able to negate uh, a creature's entire turn, essentially, not being able to take a reaction uh, and only being able to take action, bonus action, or movement um, makes this ridiculously strong. Yeah, especially if, you know, if you think about higher level spellcasters digging into their back pocket for their little second level spell that they pump up to possibly fifth level, targeting more creatures and making the entire team or squad that's after them 
inept. They can't do anything. Exactly. And this is a second level spell, which to remind you, you'll get access to second level spells at third level as a sorcerer. So uh, continuing on, uh, the new third level spell is Intellect Fortress. Um, we saw this uh, in a previous episode in Bard. We're going to see it come up again in Artificer, Warlock, and Wizard. But just to remind you, it's a, it's a spell that's got a range of 30 feet. It's a concentration spell, lasts for up to an hour. Uh, the target is, is one target, it's yourself or another creature. And uh, it gives them resistance to psychic damage and also advantage on intelligence, wisdom, and charisma saves. You get to choose more creatures if you use a higher spell slot, as long as everybody's within 30 feet of each other. Um, continuing on, because I'm not, that's not exactly my favorite of the, the new spells. It's, you know, it's got its uses, but uh, again, want to make sure that we're covering everything in Warlock, not just the expanded spells. Um, and sorry, in Sorcerer. I said Warlock, and we're talking about Sorcerers. Um, at 6th level is a new spell called Tasha's Otherworldly Guise. It's a bonus action. It's got a material component requirement. You need to have some item engraved with a symbol from the Outer Plains that's worth at least 500 gold pieces. Um, you target yourself. It's a concentration spell up to a minute. And you choose either Lower Plains or Upper Plains. Um, and you gain a list of benefits when you cast a spell. If you choose the Upper Plains... You gain immunity to radiant and necrotic damage and immunity to being charmed. If you choose lower planes, you gain immunity to fire and poison damage and immunity to being poisoned. You also gain spectral wings that give you 40 feet of flying, a plus two bonus to AC. Your weapon attacks are magical and you can use your spellcasting modifier instead of strength for attack and damage rolls. And also, if some other feature hasn't given you this ability already, you can now attack twice. And uh, all these in total kind of remind me of that Asimar ability that, uh, you know, makes you able to fly and deal some additional damage and whatnot. Uh, but this one being a heck of a lot stronger, it's a six level spell. Wow, that would... Uh... Yeah, I mean, sorcerers are already very formidable spellcasters and being able to fly around dealing additional damage and like... Ugh. That's a really cool spell. I like it a lot. Yeah, very very, uh, very powerful as you'd expect from 6th level spells. So continuing on, um, a 7th level spell on this new expanded list is Dream of the Blue Veil. And we covered this in the Bard episode. But just to remind you, this is that strange spell that lets you and up to 8 willing creatures transport to another world on a material plane um, as long as the spell finishes. And again, to reiterate, I'm not exactly sure what the intended function of this spell is. Maybe it is simply... Um, their way of giving something that makes sense if the DM wants to have the party go to some other world and totally switch focuses of the campaign. I'm not sure, um, but it's a cool spell, I guess. It's, yeah, thematically it's cool. It's like it'd be a, it'd be a really cool thing if the DM got really, really into it to describe this dream and do everything. I, I just try to think about functionality and... I, if, if somebody really gives me a good, solid uh, reason for having this, I would love to see it happen, and I would love to have somebody cast it, but for right now, I'm still unconvinced. Yeah, one of those spells that I would be really excited as a player to see go off, but not as a sorcerer to take as my one of my chosen spells. Yeah. So last up on the new expanded spell list is a ninth level spell called Blade of Disaster. This one is a bit nutty, as you'd expect a ninth level spell to be. Um, as a, you cast it as a bonus action, it's got a range of 60 feet. It's a concentration spell for up to a minute. You create this blade-shaped planar rift, 
And on casting, this blade-shaped planar rift, you can make uh, a melee spell attack on two different things, you know, a creature or a loose object or a structure um, that are within five feet of the blade. Um, as a bonus action, you can move the blade 30 feet and make two more attacks. The blade can pass through barriers. Um, and on hit, it does 4d12 force damage. Um, if you crit with it, you then add 8d12 more force damage for a total of 12d12 force damage. And also, the part that makes this a bit nutty is... Uh, natural rolls of 18 and up are considered critical hits. So depending on how your DM likes to interpret critical hits, if they're like me and a lot of other DMs where they just count all crits as full damage dice and then you roll again, uh, this spell is a bit nutty, especially since you're getting to attack twice with it. Um, and it's a concentration spell where you just keep moving it around the battlefield. That is the spell that's going to end the fight. That's the one you have, yeah, you're saving in your back pocket as as the uh, the finisher, that's the that's the one that you step more than sixty feet away from the BBEG spellcaster, so they can't cast counterspell, and you cast your blade of disaster. Right. So you should note. Uh, I thought perhaps when you cast this, you could attack you know four total times, but it is a bonus action to cast, and it's a bonus action to move. So it is simply a, a two attacks per per round with this thing. I mean, I'm just gonna say it. I think that clerics should get Blade of Disaster. I'm just saying. They already have Spiritual Weapon. I think that this would be like Spiritual Weapon's badass grandma. Yeah, okay, okay. That's, that's what fair. I'm thinking. That's fair. Unfortunately, it is a sorcerer spell. However, let's continue on, shall we? And, and not focus too much on how awesome this spell is. Um, at third level, we've got a couple of new metamagic options. Uh, metamagic being those things that you spend your sorcery points on to beef up your spells. And um, in Tasha's, we have two new options. Seeking spell um, at the cost of two sorcery points. Um, if you make a spell attack and miss, you can spend those two points and reroll the d20 and take the new roll. We also have transmuted spell, which costs you one sorcery point, And uh, you simply are able to change the damage type of the spell to uh, a different type, acid, cold, fire, lightning, poison, or thunder. So uh, a useful feature, it's sort of a, got its own little niche of when it's useful. It's not going to be useful all the time. Uh, but certainly if you know you're going into a fight where something is um, going to be resistant or vulnerable to a certain type and you have spells that aren't that type um, or they're resistant and they are that type, you can just change the damage type. So, you know, it's got its uses. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, at level four is the Sorceress Versatility, which is the Sorceress version of a feature we've seen over and over again, um, at level four, you gain access to this, and uh, anytime you gain a level that makes you um, gain ability scores in Sorcerer, you can either uh, swap one of your metamagic choices or swap a Sorcerer cantrip for another one. And then last up for the optional features is Magical Guidance. Um, it's a feature that costs you one Sorcery point, and it just allows you to reroll a failed ability check. So lots of new options, lots of new spells, and um, yeah, not much else to say on those. I'd like to continue on with the, the two new Sorcerer's Origins. Um, these are the things, like I said, that you take at level one, where the subclasses for Sorcerer really begin. And um, I think, before I get into both of them, I think they're they're both obviously really strong in a, in a specific niche sort of way. And it's not clear exactly how they're supposed to be used or what role they're going to fill in the party. 
um, but they're clearly very good. And personally, I really like that um, it is asking me to figure out the best way to use these abilities and subclasses and uh, how I need to work with the party in order to optimize uh, my function and my role. Um, so, that, so that said, uh, let's get into the first one. Um, this one's called Aberrant Mind. And with this one, the origin uh, is some sort of external alien influence that has wrapped its tendrils around your mind, giving you this psychic psionic power. And however those powers originated is up to you. Or if you're needing some creative inspiration, the book gives you a table that you can roll on. And just for example, some of these suggested origins. Um, perhaps you were exposed to the far realm's warping influence, and you are now convinced that a tentacle is growing on you, but no one else can see it. Or perhaps you were implanted with a mind flared tadpole, but the seramorphosis never completed, and now its psionic power is yours. Whenever you use it, your flesh shines with a strange mucus. So, you know, a lot of creative ideas. It's really up to you how these aberrant mind abilities originated with you. Um, but the features that you get, at first level, we have the psionic spells, which work really similarly to the druid circle spells. It's a list of spells you gain at specific levels, first, third, fifth, seventh, and ninth. And uh, they, you just have them in your, in your arsenal. They don't count towards the number of spells that you know. Uh, additionally, whenever you gain a level in Sorcerer, you can replace a spell on the list um, that you know uh, from the psionic spells with another one of the same level. As long as it's from Sorcerer, Warlock, or Wizard, and as long as it's from the Divination or Enchantment schools. The uh, Aberrant Mind is really specific about what it does, so it's got that restriction of being from those three classes, those two different schools. Um, and all of these spells on this list are from Player's Handbook spells. There's none of the new spells here, uh, except for the new uh, Summon Aberration, which is a 7th level psionic spell. The other feature at level 1 in this Sorceress Origin is called Telepathic Speech. And as a bonus action, you, know, you choose a creature that's within 30 feet of you, and for a number of minutes equal to your sorcerer level, you can communicate telepathically with that target uh, out to a range of number of miles equal to your charisma modifier, uh, as long as you guys are, you know, you share some sort of common language. Um, the limit for this is just one creature at a time. So uh, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like that rogue feature that we just talked about, except where it's got some you know, some restrictions, some limitations. It is a level one feature. And uh, it's probably one of those that just gets a lot better as, uh, you know, as you level up in in, in Sorcerer. Um, because you do have to choose something within 30 feet and you're likely not going to be hitting that range barrier <laughs> at level one. Um, since, you know, at level one, you get to do this for one minute and Theoretically, the range of it is, you know, two to three miles. Your target's not going to be getting that far away within one minute, you know. But maybe they are after five minutes or, or seven minutes. Who knows? Maybe they're teleporting somewhere or, you know, use, use it how, how you want. Yeah, listening to you say that, I'm, I'm very curious as to how someone is going to be able to get, you know, that, that far away and only be able to speak telepathically, you know, a number of minutes equal to your sorcerer level at 20th level, that's 20 minutes still with a, uh, like an upper bound of five miles. Yeah. That's only 20 minutes. Not that like, far, but you know, so how are you going to get 20 miles away or how are you going to get five miles away 
from being 30 feet away in 20 minutes, I don't know. Yeah. You know, if, if a train leaves Pittsburgh at, you know. I'm not, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna wrench too much on a, on a level one ability. Um, however, uh, at level six, we come to the next feature. Uh, this is called psionic sorcery, and uh, this applies to spells that you cast from that psionic spells list. Um, when you do so, you can instead of burning a spell slot, you can spend a number of sorcery points equal to that spell's level to cast it instead. And if you do it that way, uh, the spell doesn't require any components unless it's a material component that the spell consumes. So it just gives you a little more freedom and flexibility with how you're casting your spells. Um, and at level six, you've got you're gonna have six sorcery points since you have a number equal to your level. So, um, so yeah, not not a whole lot else to say with this this feature. It just gives you some flexibility with uh, with spell casting. That is nice. Uh, you know, again, I think how we had talked about with um, the ranger that, that the Fey Wanderer Ranger. I think it's really cool that you can potentially not at sixth level because you need to be seventh level to cast this spell but i think even when you get to seventh level and you can cast the the summon aberration i think it'd be nice that you don't if you wanted to use your sorcery points to do so you wouldn't have to have that special thing that the summon spells need to have right right and in some situations um not requiring somatic or verbal components could be useful as well and again like you said um as long as the spell doesn't consume the item, I guess this would bypass uh, material component requirements that have a gold value attached to it as well, as long as it's not consumed by the spell. Right. So uh, continuing on, the other level six feature um, is called Psychic Defense. You gain resistance to psychic damage, and you also have advantage on saves against being charmed or frightened. Not a whole lot to say about this one. It's just uh, a feature you gain some cool stuff. Um, so continuing on at level 14, we have a feature called Revelation in Flesh. And as a bonus action, you can spend uh, one sorcery point to gain a benefit. There's a list of four different ones that uh, they're kind of not really related, uh, but maybe the situation calls uh, on it. Um, you can spend one sorcery point per benefit. Um, you get them for 10 minutes, and the four that you have to choose from um, one of them is your eyes turn black or become these writhing sensory tendrils, and you can see any invisible creature within 60 feet that isn't behind total cover. The second feature, the second choice and benefit, your skin glistens with mucus or shines with otherworldly light, and you gain a flying speed equal to your walking speed, and you also can hover. Um, the third one is uh, gills grow from your neck or fan out from behind your ears. Uh, your fingers become webbed, or maybe you grow this writhing cilia that extend through your clothing, and you gain a swimming speed equal to twice your walking speed. And last of these benefits, um, your body and any equipment that you are wearing or carrying become slimy and pliable, and you can squeeze through any space as narrow as one inch, and you can spend five feet of movement to escape from non-magical restraints or from being grappled. So, as you, as you can see, none of these are, are particularly... Uh, related or, or, or working together. They're just sort of situational. Um, but perhaps there is a situation where you do need to squeeze into a one-inch gap while you're swimming. I don't know. Um, but being able to simply gain these features for 10 minutes just by spending a single sorcery point, um, depending on the situation, you know, is going to be pretty good. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't even want to know what it would look like to have a sorcerer spend... A sorcery point 
to squeeze under the space of a door. Like, <laughs> thinking about Alex Mack, that old Nickelodeon TV show. Oh, right. Turning into a puddle, sliding under a door, and just popping out the other side because they can squeeze through a one-inch gap. But it's kind of cool because it reminds me of, like, an octopus. Taking that one and the uh, the flying one to go and, you know, squeeze yourself through uh, an open window that's, you know, 10 stories up or something like that. Yeah. Um, taking it piece by piece is kind of a little underwhelming. It's like you can gain a flying, gain a swimming speed, uh, squeeze through things. You can see invisible things. But I think adding different combinations of those could really make this powerful. Like you said, like squeezing into a, a high through a high window, 10 stories up, flying up to it and doing that, or doing that under the water, swimming underwater and seeing these invisible creatures that can't be seen. Like, it's cool. I I think being able to choose how you want to benefit is really cool. Yeah, I think that's, that's really the power behind this ability, these sets of benefits as a level 14 ability, um, being able to choose how you combine them depending on the situation. Um, and then being relatively dirt cheap, you know, level 14, you've got 14 points and each one only costs one point. Uh, and you're getting these abilities that last for 10 minutes. That is a, is a big window of time to be able to accomplish a lot of things. Yeah. So last up of the, uh, the features for the aberrant mind sorceress origin is a feature called warping implosion. This one's a really cool crowd control ability. You use your aberrant power as this space warping anomaly. As an action, you can teleport to a space you can see within 120 feet, and every creature within 30 feet of where you left must make a strength save. On fail, they take 3d10 force damage, and they're pulled as close as they can to where you left from. Um, on success, they take half damage, they're not pulled. You get to use this ability once per long rest, unless you spend five sorcery points to use it again. So I'm just thinking there's a lot of really cool uses for this. And 30 feet uh, radius of, of, of where you left from is a big area. Um, there's just so many ways to use this. Like I said at the start, I love that each of these origins, it's not immediately obvious as to what the role is or how you're supposed to use it. But right off the bat, I'm thinking, you know, a sorcerer could use this to crowd control and put a bunch of enemies all within a confined space as the wizard gets ready to drop a fireball on them or something. Um, or maybe you're fighting up on top of a mountain or a plateau or something, and you use your movement to go and run and jump off, then use a warping implosion to teleport back to land and drag all your enemies off the cliff. God, that's so cool. That is such a baller 18th level feature. That's so cool. Thinking about just like the sorcerer, bulleting towards the ledge of this cliff, jumping off and just imploding itself to teleport, dragging people off of the cliffside and landing, he, the sorcerer landing squarely on his feet or their feet to look back at their party saying, you're welcome. Right, pulling those enemies 30 feet in the direction off the cliff. Um, or really, the limit is yours, whatever you can creatively come up with. Like I said, it's not obvious as to what the role of this is or what the purpose is or how you're supposed to use it. But there is a lot of opportunity and creative, really cool uses for it, for sure. So I'm very excited to try this one out. Um, it's reading some of the origins behind it. Some of those uh, suggested on the, on the table gives me a really stranger, uh, stranger things vibe. Oh yeah. Very, very much upside down. Yeah. So 
Um, moving on to the second sorcerer's origin. This one's called Clockwork Soul. And in this one, your power comes from the cosmic force of order, from some plane of existence like Mechanus or some other realm that is governed by clockwork precision and efficiency. And at level one, we have uh, Clockwork Magic. And this is similar. It's uh, a list of spells that are like the Druid Circle spells that you, know, you gain at first, third, fifth, seventh, and ninth level. Um, they're just spells that you know. They don't count towards the number of spells that you know. And uh, similarly, whenever you gain a level in Sorcerer, you can replace one of those on the list um, from one with the same level, as long as it's from Sorcerer, Warlock, or Wizard. And for this origin, it's got to be a spell that's of the Abjuration or Transmutation School of Magic. Again, this one does specific things, so they want to make sure that you're taking spells that are thematic to this origin. And uh, additionally, when you cast spells from this Clockwork Magic spell list, um, you can choose... Uh, how they manifest, how your connection to this clockwork precision energy manifests, or you can roll on this table. Um, and these are really cool sort of flavor uh, roleplay opportunities. And, and just to give some examples, some of my favorites, um, spectral cogwheels hover behind you when you cast a spell. Um, or perhaps um, there's these floating equations or geome and geometric objects that overlay your body. Or maybe there's a ticking of gears or ringing of clock uh, that can be heard by you and those affected by your magic. Um, just to give you a, a sense of flavor for what this uh, sorcerer's origin is is kind of thematically about. That's really cool. I like the I like the idea of you know clockwork and cogs magically appearing behind you as you cast your spells. Yeah, this this kind of makes me uh, think of like Final Fantasy thirteen. Oh, just a little bit. Some of those, some of those bosses had a real, uh, you know, clockwork vibe to it. Um, however, moving on at first level also is a feature called restore balance. I really love this one, um, just because it's a first level feature and because of what it does. Um, you can use it a number of times uh, equal to your proficiency bonus per long rest. It's got a range of sixty feet. And as a reaction, you can use this ability to negate someone's advantage or disadvantage. Basically saying, you know, let's let's wipe the slate, restore balance. You don't get to benefit or be disadvantaged. It's just a straight roll. And um, in my notes, I wrote, because fuck pack tactics, that's why. Yep. It's a level one feature that just says, no, you don't get advantage or disadvantage. That's it. It's a straight roll. And I really love that. And thematically, restore balance. I love it. Yeah, and, you know, uh, thinking about the fact of if a player of yours or a companion of yours gets disadvantaged, being able to say, nope, you have a, you have a straight roll. Yeah, exactly. So um, continuing on is a level six feature called Bastion of Law. This allows you to, uh, and I'm quoting from the book because their text is way cooler than I could have paraphrased. It allows you to tap into the grand equation of existence to imbue a creature with a shimmering shield of order. It's an action, and it's got a range of 30 feet. You can spend anywhere from 1 to 5 sorcery points to give a, a creature that many d8s worth of damage reduction, and they get to keep that. This benefit lasts until you finish a long rest or until you use the feature again. So um, it's you know, upwards of 5d8s worth of damage reduction, and they don't have to use all of it in the same one. They can use it however they want, and they keep it until uh, you finish a long rest. That's cool. Especially, you know, 
being able to give another your squishier dps basically a shield upwards of 40 damage yeah it's uh, gonna be quite good and and the fact that you can choose you know do you want to just do they only need one d8 and i'm not gonna blow this level six feature that gives a ton of reduction on something that doesn't need a whole lot of reduction um or like you said it's a somebody that really really needs that extra uh damage reduction so let's use all five sorcery points yeah and it says yourself too so if you know maybe you didn't take too much in con and you know that you had low low health rolls when you leveled up this could be a nice right, right. shield for you but and to just point out it is um that benefit that shield lasts until you finish a long rest or until you use this feature again so you can't just continually stack and just hand out these uh, D8s like candy because you have enough sorcery points. But it is still uh, a pretty good amount of reduction. Yeah. So continuing on at level 14 is a feature called Trance of Order. This allows you to align your consciousness with the realm of order. And as a bonus action, you enter this trance-like state for up to a minute. And you gain a couple of benefits. You gain um, attack rolls against you cannot have advantage. And also your attacks, checks, and saves all treat a 9 or lower as a 10. You get to do this once per long rest, or if you spend 5 sorcery points to, do, to, do, uh, to use it again. Okay. So, uh, it's one of those that's not flashy, but it's situationally very useful. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, it's... I think sticking with the theme of these two origins, not obvious as to why it's good or, or how exactly it's going to be used. It certainly, I think, is going to require some teamwork in order to make it really good. And perhaps that was the idea with the clockwork soul. You know, it is a, uh, a puzzle of, of balance and precision. And you as the player have to find that what that precision is in order to make it optimal. Or maybe I'm looking way too into it. I don't know. Well, I mean, also... Looking over the text again, just to be very clear, because Wizards of the Coast does a good job with uh, consistency. Um, looking at the text here, it does not say anything about you falling unconscious. So treating a roll of 9 or lower on the d20 as a 10 on your death saves, you will succeed. As long as it's within that one minute of time that you became unconscious. Yeah, that's a really good point. I actually hadn't considered that. That's uh, and like you said, they're very con they're, they're very precise and consistent with their wording. So the fact that they didn't say that you have to be conscious um, makes me think that it was intended to be used beyond you know you being conscious in battle. Yeah. So at least that's what I'm reading. I'm not saying that those are the official rules. I never would say that, but I'm saying that's my interpretation of the text. Is that your your body and your existence is benefiting from this trance uh this these endless calculations of mechanis um so that you are benefiting from this and you are getting the death saves you're rolling tens every time so you're passing every time to get back up in battle yeah yeah in that sense this is uh, is quite good but again I, I, this is a feature that's clearly good it's just not obvious as to why it's good yeah and i think that is uh, a really good summary of the level 18 feature it's called clockwork cavalcade 
you get to summon these spirits of order in this 30-foot cube centered on you. They can appear, these, these spirits can appear however you wish. Um, it's probably going to be some sort of uh, clockwork mechanism or construct. And these uh, clockwork construct spirits create the following benefits. You can uh, restore up to 100 hit points divided any way you want within the cube. Um, you can instantly repair entirely any damaged objects in that cube. And every sixth level spell or lower ends on creatures and objects you choose within the cube. Um, you get to use this feature once per long rest, or you can spend seven sorcery points to use it again. So just to hammer it again, to reiterate, this is clearly a really good feature, a really good uh, option for this class. Uh, it's just not immediately obvious as to what the purpose is or how to use it. And it, it's not entirely clear what constitutes a damaged object um, and how entirely repairing that would, would uh, you know, be interpreted. Uh, but the other ones are there, they're clear how they work, but it's just, it's not obvious as to why this is really good. It's clear it's good. It just is likely going to take some teamwork and some cooperation to make it the best, you know? It's a, it's a good healing spell and a dispel magic spell in a 30-foot cube, so you don't have to worry about, you know, targeting someone with it. And, yeah, the damaged objects, uh, I, that's up to DMs. I know that sometimes DMs don't want to worry about, like, all right, your armor is damaged, or, you know, throughout the fight saying that pieces of your armor falls off or whatever, things like that. So I think that may or may not uh, see play as much as, you know, however DMs want to handle that. But I think immediately useful is the fact that it is a like mass heal and not the heal spell, but a, a mass healing spell and a mass like dispel magic, depending on how many people are in that 30 foot cube. Right. It just, it, it is falling into the theme of precision and, and order um, and, and restoration that we've seen with, uh, you know, previous features in this, uh, sorcerer's origin. Mm -hmm. um, so whereas some of the other sorcerer origins are more, uh, you know, dealing damage and and being like a melee kind of a, a, a spellcaster, this one seems to be more of a uh, a support and um, not quite along the lines of being a healing subclass. They're they're more of a like a support, I think. Yeah, support, and they're offering uh, utility shields. Um, things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I guess those are my final thoughts on these two origins. They're um, ones that you really got to think about and probably coordinate with the party, with the group, and uh, really figure out what your role is going to be because it's not immediately clear as to how you fit in. You know, they're not fighters that they deal damage. They're not healers that they are the ones making sure the party stays alive. They're not exactly the ranged classes that are trying to pick off people from the back lines or wizards that are casting, you know, fireballs and counterspells. They, they do specific things well, but it's not exactly clear what role they're supposed to fill. And I really like that, and I think each one of these is, is one that I'm interested in exploring. 100%. I think, and I think this goes across the board for most sorcerers. Um, again, I really haven't dipped my my toes into the cool waters of sorcererdom, but I have noticed that sorcerers are very niche. They are very specific and catered towards a specific 
goal and a specific theme. And I think that figuring out how you want to best include those specific thematic elements into your party helps you decide what kind of sorcerer you're going to be. And across the board, it looks as though sorcerer kind of breaks away from the Tasha's Cauldron of Everything formula for these subclasses where they introduce something early and then build upon it later. That's something I did notice with the Aberrant Mind and the Clockwork Soul is that they didn't introduce something early and compound on it later. It was, these are specific things that these sorcerers can do. They all fall under the umbrella of this theme, but they do not compound off of each other. Yeah, and that's that's fine, honestly. I'm, I'm, I like that idea, and I'm also simultaneously glad that they didn't speci- uh, stick to that formula with every class. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it is a refreshing, um, different point of view when it comes to creating something that is new and fresh, but also not falling into your own formula. So, and and I, I agree. I like that. They're, they're following the, the trend of how sorcerers are built and how sorcerers are very niche and specific um, while also adding fresh new ideas. Exactly. So any final thoughts on sorcerer, um, uh, the two origins that we talked about? Other than the fact that both seem really cool, I think if I was going to make one, it would probably be that aberrant mind. Um, I, I love the idea of some sort of alien or eldritch being kind of warping your mind and manifesting these powers. I think that's so cool. And I mean, to be honest, I want to get to level 18. I want to do that warping implosion so bad. <laughs> I know. That one is so cool. That's awesome. And what about you? Do you have anything anything you want to say about those two rogue subclasses, Phantom and Soul Knife? I think I'm really excited to try out Phantom, to be honest. Yeah, I want to I want to be Danny Phantom. I want to turn into a ghost. I want to walk through walls. Yeah, and that Wails from the Grave doing the the extra necrotic damage. That's so cool. Yeah, totally. I am I'm, I'm excited to try that one out for sure. Same. And getting those uh those what did you call them? Soul trinkets? Yeah, the soul trinkets. God, that's so cool. All right. Well, that is our show this week. Thank you so much for stopping by. And if you liked this episode, please check out our future episodes, which are released every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Central. Next week, we're going to be continuing our journey through Tasha's Cauldron of Everything as we discuss the Warlock and Wizard subclasses and everything that Tasha has to offer them. This has been Discussions in Dragons. I'm Britton. And I'm Jaren. See you next time.